Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at the new Seth Rogen, Charlize Theron comedy, uh, rom-com adventure, I should say, long shot. We're also going to take a look at the Netflix exclusive, extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile about uh, the Ted Bundy murders starring Zac Efron, America's sweetheart. We're going to talk about uh, a, certain, a certain blue hedgehog. That needs to be talked about on the show because <laughs> we were talking about Endgame last week and felt like it would be out of place in that conversation. But we're going to talk about Sonic the Hedgehog, the film and our Death of Cinema segment. So stay tuned for that in between our reviews. And before we get to all of it, we need to talk about the news of the week. The first story, and I'm excited to talk about this one. A Hellraiser reboot is being reimagined, uh, starring the pin, Pinhead and the Cenobites with a script by David S. Goyer. I love Hellraiser. Not as much as Andy loves Hellraiser, though. So <laughs> yeah, strangely. Please uh, take the reins on this one. Uh, so the 1987 classic Hellraiser, which has spawned nine films, many of which straight to DVD, um, is going to be completely remade. And I think this is something I actually said on the show that it's something I would like to see redone instead of just having, a, you know, sequel after sequel. Uh, so I think this is pretty exciting. It, it's going to be penned by David S. Goyer, who wrote Batman Begins, and it's going to be a complete reimagining. So we're going to see new characters, new interpretations of, of the, the Hell Priests. And uh, yeah, it, it, I th- I'm really looking forward to it. I'm I'm really excited about this. Uh, the Hellraiser movies, for anybody who hasn't seen them, are so freaking metal, man. They are classic, like '80s body horror in the best way. They're they're as twisted as Clive Barker can get on film. Uh, they're so dark. They're so dark, and that's what I like. That's that's what I always appreciated about them. They're just evil. It's just bad news, and and I love that. And and I hope this new one can kind of capture that. I know David S. Goyer. Man, Batman Begins is a good flick, and, and it holds up, and a lot of people forget it because the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight Rises, but like, I'm excited to see what he can do uh, with this idea. Yeah, um, me, <laughs> me too. It's, it's, I'm really excited about it, and I'm, I'm wondering which direction they'll go, you know, what kind of horror they will bring, um, and, and what they, how they can reimagine these characters, because Pinhead is such a classic look, uh, so it's, I, I'm interested to see how they'll reimagine them for modern audiences and how they'll modernize uh the movie as a whole and i can't wait to see who they get to direct um you know i i think of names like uh james wan uh from from the insidious films or, or bloom house productions right somebody over there but like hot take i'd love like somebody like luca guadagnino to get a piece of this yeah. <laughs> just because the Suspiria re- reboot was so cool and it was ar- i mean it's arguably a better film than the original which sounds crazy but like it's just such a cool, like, reimagining in a different direction that I hope they, they pick up a little bit of that with this, you know, just a hair, and don't go the way of, like, Pet Cemetery where they just phone it in because they know it's easy money, which it, there's yeah. a ton of potential for this to become. So we'll see what happens. Uh, if, if the track record of its nine, of its eight sequels and the nine film saga of Hellraiser is any indication, there's, there's a good chance this gets phoned in, but we're hoping not, and keep it here on Oscript to find out what happens next with Hellraiser. Our next story, the U.S. returns seized Wolf of Wall Street millions to Malaysia. This is involving, of course, the funding of the Martin Scorsese picture, The Wolf of Wall Street, and some uh, 
questionable funds that came from yes. the country of Malaysia. You know more about this, Andy. What, what's going on with this? Yeah, so we've talked about this a couple of times, and this is just the latest development. Um, but apparently about $4.5 billion were stolen from the Malaysian Wealth Fund, and part of that money was used to fund a production company called Red Granite Productions, who funded the Wolf of Wall Street film starring Leonardo DiCaprio, which is incredibly ironic that a film about insider trading and embezzling money was funded by funds that were uh, embezzled. Um, So what's happened now is that uh, about $60 million has been returned to that fund from, this is specifically from the Wolf of Wall Street um, money that it earned. Uh, they've, They've only got, about a th- not even a third. They've recovered about three hundred million so far, of the four and a half billion that's that's gone missing. Uh, a lot of this money was used to to buy property and other things unrelated to, to the film. And what's crazy is that the person at the at the center of all this this whole scandal, who was is in the credits of the Wolf of Wall Street, as a, he gets a personal thank you. Is nowhere to be found. He's on the run, and the authorities are still trying to uh, find like the main guy who, who's involved. So it, it's a crazy story that fits in per- uh, perfectly with the Wolf of Wall Street tale itself. It's it's really something else, and I love that that movie. By the way, it's it's a guilty pleasure kind of flick for me because it's three hours, and it's all about uh, the rampant excess of capitalism in America in the eighties, and it's fantastic if you haven't seen it for me anyway. Uh, and what I love about this story is it's a, it's a great reminder of how film can truly outlast like the bounds of, of human possibility. You know, they, they went and shot this thing with money they, they didn't have and they didn't earn, but they figured out a way to do it and then shot it. And now I have a Blu-ray of it and like, yeah, you got to return the money, but man, oh man, like, do I have a movie man, that do I we love? Have so it. yeah. It, it came from. It, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say it, it's interesting because Leonardo DiCaprio he, he is not in in you know implicated in any of the uh, wrongdoing. Uh, however, he did have to re- return several very pricey gifts that he he was given uh, by uh, Red Granite Productions, uh, namely uh, Marlon Brando's uh, Oscar, which he was gifted, and also some very expensive pieces of art. Um, <laughs> and that is, that is a bummer, uh, and and that's ultimately not good for anybody. But like. <sighs> What a perfect, like, poetic little example of of the of the wonderful things, uh, the horrible things, I should say, that can happen in Hollywood. Man, oh man, Robin exactly. Peter to pay Paul. Uh, our last story: uh, three new Star Wars films get release dates in the Disney schedule re- reset. This is following their acquisition of 21st Century Fox assets. Of course, the Star Wars films have been announced to have release dates. Uh, we also have some other movements uh, in pre-existing properties but i want to talk about these first these are the headline right andy fill fill people in what are these star wars movies what are they about what are they supposed to be about <laughs> when are they coming out all, all that goodness well the, the big thing is is that we just don't know um we know that that uh ryan johnson uh, director of the last jedi which is a very divisive film uh that he is doing a brand new trilogy and that he's working with game of uh, game of thrones show ru- runners db weiss and david benioff on th- they're doing a set of films as well. So they're looking at the next 10 years and we finally have some, some hard dates here starting in December, 2022 and then December, 2024 and 26. So there's a trilogy there, which we have to wait three years for. And I'm not, not, not happy about that, but at the same time, maybe they'll get it right. Maybe they'll bring us uh, something new. Uh, what do you think about this? 
You know, I think it's good. I, ultimately, it's something we had talked about after Solo came out, and we said, I mean, before Solo came out, we said they should probably consider taking a break. Then after Solo came out, we said we should, you should definitely consider taking a break. Just <laughs> let it, let the property cool off for a minute. Let, you know, let people reset a little bit. Obviously, you've got a lot of plans for Star Wars, and Disney has made their money back hand over fist for buying the rights from Lucasfilm. Uh, they're doing this smart, too, because while they're taking a break from the silver screen, they're going to be working on streaming services. Uh, John Favreau's The Mandalorian is going to be coming out on Disney+. Plus. They also have another Diego Luna-led Rogue One prequel that's going to be a thing, and they're going to be kind of cultivating that over there. So if you want your Star Wars, you can go get it. It's on your favorite streaming platform, Disney+. Plus. And in the meantime, hopefully... Uh, things will cool off at the box office and people will kind of forget a little bit. Oh, yeah, Star Wars kind of got lame for a second. And hopefully this new reset with some big names in the industry will be enough to uh, reignite that fire. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I've said many times after the way The Force Awakens uh, went and a lot of the rest of Star Wars planning has gone that they just need to start over. They need to start something new. They need to stop relying so much on the original trilogy. You know, just give us something new. Give us new characters, new settings, new conflicts, new problems. Uh, just anything that isn't nostalgia bait. Uh, so I, I'm really stoked that that we have hard dates. Um, here, here's my my here's my uh, theory. We're gonna get a Ryan Johnson trilogy, and da- David Benioff and and DB Weiss. We're gonna get. Uh, one anthology films from then. Mm, okay, that's not bad. You think they're working like not not collaborating directly on the same project, but rather like across a timeline of projects. That's, that's right. Theory. Like it's I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if between these this new trilogy of films, that's when we're getting some uh, some one offs. Yeah, that's that, really. I know that that's what they want to try to do. They want to try to do the Marvel thing and have multi, multiple releases a year, or at least one Star Wars film uh, per year. Well, one thing's for sure, I don't think they could have a better team behind them to rally around the idea of building Star Wars around somebody that's not a Skywalker. I mean, Ryan Johnson clearly tried to lean away from that in The Last Jedi, and David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, like, obviously in Game of Thrones, you can see they have a passion for all kinds of characters from all walks of life, and it doesn't have to be who's destined to be great. Ned Stark in Season 1 is a great freaking example of how they're willing to uh, put that aside and and take on a project anyway and say, you know what? No, we like the challenge of trying to build up smaller characters, underdogs, for them to come back from nothing and become something. And if you're starting Star Wars on a foot that doesn't start with the Skywalker, it's probably a good place to go. Yeah. Uh, another interesting part of the story, because there's a lot of films that have been moved around, either removed completely from the release slate or pushed back. Uh, one of those is, is James Cameron's uh, Avatar series, which is getting, uh, there are four sequels, and they're getting pushed back again, and the first one will come out uh, in December of 2021, and then, again, there's four sequels all the way up through 2027, which is crazy. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if anyone's going to care by then. And I love the way some of these are moved around because it is a it is a block of a mess of text to look at this paragraph. One gets pushed back a year. Next one gets pushed back two years. Next one one year. Like it doesn't it doesn't make any sense on paper what they're doing. Nobody knows. James Cameron tweeted about it. Like it's it's obscene. But but some something's happening. Something's happening with the Avatar thing. And for for a second before we move on to the other properties in this in this list, there's not many. Can I can I offer my theory as to why 
the Avatar thing is still happening, how this hasn't died on the vine yet. Because I've, I've got a pretty compelling one, if you're willing to hear it. Can, can I yeah. have the, can yeah, the, what's the that? floor for a second? Here it is. Uh, in 2007, right, Harry Potter is the hottest thing on the market. The next movie's coming out. They've had like six of these things. Everybody wants a piece. Potter mania is, is, is in deep in 2007. And J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, has the rights to the uh, amusement park right holdings of, of of Harry Potter to turn her thing into an amusement park and Disney and Universal are in Florida bickering back and forth about what they want ultimately Disney wants it but they want one too many things that they can control because they're all about the park experience and Universal says we'll give you whatever you want we don't care so she signs with Universal Universal Studios gets Harry Potter World and suddenly Universal Studios Florida is a place people want to go it's not like the additional park you hit when you're not at Disney World Florida right it's the new thing. So in 2007, Disney, not doing so hot in their parks, needs to rally. They need a property that's big, that people like, and they say, what's the number one movie of all time right now? Avatar. Because in 2007, Avatar was the hotness. So they take a chunk of Animal Kingdom, slice it off, build Pandora, and put a billion freaking dollars into making Pandora World at, at, at Animal Kingdom. Which is a thing. I went there. You can see it. They have rides. <laughs> so now Disney is in a billion dollars deep on Avatar. And James Cameron is acting like these next five movies are going to be great. And what are they going to do? Bail? They literally have an amusement park for it. Like, they right. can't go back wow. now. They've come too far. That is why Avatar is still kicking. I'm convinced that is why Avatar is still in conversations. Because otherwise, it never would have worked if the House of Mouse hadn't absurdly bought into it. Anyway. Yeah. No, agreed. that's my bit on Avatar. Sorry, I'm convinced <laughs> that's what's happening. I, I don't know for sure, but that's that's my theory. Uh, the other films mentioned in here are New Mutants, the X-Men film that was shot under the Fox regime. Pushed back again. Pushed back again. There was a trailer for this movie. I'm pretty sure you can still go see the teaser somewhere. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't awesome, but like it's something it stars some of the Game of Thrones people. Maisie Williams is in it. Uh, uh, one of the kids from Stranger Things is in it, and somehow this movie just keeps getting pushed back. I'm, I'm, I was just thinking about this the other day. I'm afraid it's never going to happen. Uh, the Gambit movie uh, is probably not happening. It's been removed from the calendar. Ad, uh, I'm sorry, Adastra, uh, Ad Astra, Adastra, <laughs> uh, the the James Gray sci-fi feature, sci-fi film featuring Brad Pitt that we talked about just a couple weeks on the show, eight weeks ago on the show, has been moved back. Um, so yeah, the the, the Corella movie which stars Emma Stone of course, uh, has been dated for Christmas holiday, 2020. There's a whole list here. Uh, any, any outstanding to you? Um, again, the funny thing is that new mutants continues to be pushed back. It is now something like three years back from, I mean, it was originally, I think, I think slated for fall 2017 and then it's just been pushed back there. So it's, you're looking at like a three, four year pushback on that movie. So that's just, uh, funny. Uh, sad to see the gambit movie, not uh, get knocked off again, but I mean, we've been talking about, we've literally been talking about a Gambit movie for about 20 years and it just falls through every time. So I don't, I don't know if we're ever going to get there. Yeah. It's a shame. Like I, I really thought uh, that that would kind of get somewhere, especially when Channing Tatum had a lot more going on, but man, that's how projects go in Hollywood. I guess, you, you know, if it doesn't happen fast, it doesn't happen at all. And in the case of new mutants, even if it does happen, sometimes it doesn't happen. Like it doesn't, I don't know. They need to sell that movie to Netflix or something. Retitle it. Yeah. I, pull a well, 10 Cloverfield put, put, Lane pull and just it make on it Disney, something. Disney Plus. Sure. Um, yeah, I'd take that. One last thing. Here at the bottom of the list, a number of untitled Fox Marvel uh, films pulled from, from the schedule. Uh, so that, that means that Sony probably had a lot. Or was it Sony? 
that had a uh, anyways a lot of Fox Marvel movies are not going to be happening. Uh, there's right. at least three uh, being pulled from the 2020. You're right, and those are some of my favorite ones to look at here because they're just listed as untitled Fox Marvel, and it's like that could have been anything. <laughs> That could have been anything. We have no idea what properties those were, but somewhere along the way, those were in the works. Somebody was having a conversation. Somebody wanted to put money behind it. Whatever that was, was something. Um, so I guess that's just, you know, that's how, how it go. I don't yeah. Know. Well, we should move on to our first uh, film of the show. I apologize for the long news rant. I just, I got it. I had to, I had to drop my avatar theory. It's done. I, I won't bring it up. I will bring it up again, but not this episode. Uh, Andy, please. You've graciously agreed to take the first summary here. Uh, what is our first film? Long shot. It's pretty woman, but she's Richard Gere and you're Julia Roberts. Honestly, this has been the best few weeks of my entire life. So this is the new rom-com starring Charlie Theron and Seth Rogen as kind of a mixed, uh, couple or not mixed. Sorry. Uh, unbalanced couple uh yeah. she she plays a uh, charlotte field who is secretary of state she's an incredibly successful politician she's beautiful she looks like a model um you know she's in probably one the most powerful woman in the in the world at that at that point and then we have seth rogan who's a kind of a shock journalist stoner loser guy who uh they he, they run into each other at, at a party and it turns out that she knows him or they know each other from their childhood and uh, she kind of uh, has a thing for him. And so he, she hires him to write for her campaign to help out with speeches and maybe uh, write entire speeches himself. And uh, that's where their relationship begins to blossom. Uh, so that's the setup for, for the film. Uh, Zach, what do you think? You know, Longshot suffers from a lot of traditional problems that a rom-com would have. This movie had an odd amount of charm to it, though. And I only say that from any kind of, like, film critique perspective, because I think for any average audience member, obviously I'm better than the average audience member, but for anybody, mm-hmm. yeah, excuse my high horse, uh, for any of the, I think for the average audience member, they're going to think, like, eh, it was okay, I laughed a couple times, but me, like, there's there's some oddly redeeming qualities in this, and I want to talk about what those are. It's not it's not great. It's not even really good. It's kind of okay. I've seen worse rom-coms this year, so, I, you know, I want to talk about why that is. What do you think? So I'm kind of a mixed bag on this. There, there are a lot of good things or a lot of po- positives. Um, it's got some problems as well. Uh, the things that work for me is that it is funny. I laughed a lot. I didn't want to be laughing some of the times because the, the, because of the problems I have with the movie. But it is funny. There's a lot of humor. There, there's good jokes. There's good gags. There's a lot of crass humor, like American Pie level jokes. Uh, there's something that reminds me. There's something about Mary. Um, and then there's, there's some funny, there's visual comedy. It, it works on a comedic level, uh, no doubt. I'm not really convinced about their relationship. And, and I feel that it kind of plays into this, this trope of, uh, you know, blonde bombshell falls in love with lovable loser, um, which is kind of a, a trope. And it, to me, it kind of undermines the entire film, but, uh, but that's just me. But like I said, a lot of it works. Some of it doesn't. I felt their performances were were pretty good. Um, anyways, what, what you mentioned a mixed bag. What do you, what do you, how do you feel? Well, um, let's start with the things that kind of didn't work. I, I think that's a fine place to go because you're right. Overall, uh, the overarching plot of this film just does not function. It, it's set in a political landscape that's very similar to ours but slightly different. The president uh, in this world is ambiguously 
neither Democratic or Republican. They kind of they, they leave that uh, open and they never really specify because they want everybody to like the movie. But he's a movie. He's a former television star who wants to get into movies. So he's going to hang things up. So our, our character, uh, Charlize Theron's character, uh, has, has a good shot at, at, at taking the title and becoming president. And she falls for this lovable loser from her past, who's Seth Rogen, playing himself, uh, who ultimately, like, it just doesn't work. And I get this whole, like, well, it's it's the age of Donald Trump and, and, and cr- you know, crazy things can happen in politics. But, like, no, no, the, stone, <laughs> the stoner in the windbreaker with the literal neck beard standing next to a woman who's, like, who won't eat chicken tiki masala at an event because it's too messy, like, just does not function. Anytime Charlize Theron's character had to break out of her very presidential, well-played mode because she played it really well. Anytime she had to break out of that mold to act like she got along with the Seth Rogen stoner character, it just felt forced and hammed up. It didn't work. It's it's like she was trying to play House of Cards and had to play stoner comedy. And yeah, the two yeah. just didn't fit well together. Um, Seth Rogen, meanwhile, again, plays himself. He's fine, I guess. He's Seth Rogen, you know, yeah. like I, what is there to say? There yeah. was a, there was a really charming black sidekick character he had though, who didn't get enough screen time. I actually got a lot of laughs out of that guy. Uh, what did you think of performances? Um, I, I agree. So Charlize Theron does a great job of being presidential, of being the politician's politician. She has like perfect hair and these perfect suits and she says everything the right way. There are a lot of good gags that are kind of poking fun at this like hyper, uh, scrutinizing kind of political thing like th- there's a joke about like how she needs to work on her wave because she has this really weird wave that like is all elbow and no wrist and they have to do like you know uh, some trauma here to, <laughs> to to or triage rather to fix her wave and there's a, a number of jokes like that about kind of how over scrutinized politics is um, so that part that stuff is funny uh, she is funny uh, but again this is just it's too different of a thing to work. And I actually, I, I was talking with some friends uh, and, I, and I pulled some of the women in the group and I was like, okay, g- be real with me. Where Where is Seth Rogen on the, you know, attractiveness scale? Let's g- give me a one to 10 here. Sure. And no one said anything above a four. Yeah. And <laughs> and a, another friend uh, said, you know, this the movie kind of looks like incel fuel for his, <laughs> his direct words. Because it's like... Because it's like it just reinforces the idea that a, a gross, overweight, stoner, neckbeardy guy deserves to have an eleven out of ten blonde. Yeah, the literal most powerful woman in the world who has never needed no man. Clearly, she's single in the film. Like, has managed to do everything by herself. And they kind of put it behind this like nostalgia thing. Like, oh, they used to know each other, and they have they they both like. 90s music uh, and an odd fascination with the movie Pretty Woman, which of course this is inspired by. It's worth mentioning this movie is essentially like Little or any one of those other movies that's like, or, or what men want, any of those other movies that is essentially a reboot of a 90s or 80s comedy, uh, just done modern and flipped. That's what this is. This is basically Pretty Woman backwards. In fact, it, during one scene, they play a, a, they have a dance number to a track from the Pretty Woman playlist uh, off the soundtrack. Um, I, I, I do want to talk about uh, Seth Rogen's writer character. He plays, he, he, he's, he's supposed to be this like impassioned liberal writer uh, who, who speaks from his heart. And, and ultimately, again, he's just stoner Seth Rogen. So he sounds like a dick. And, and his rhetoric doesn't work for what she's doing ever. 
Like it, it never, it never really functions. And then there's times when the two characters clash. She'll get upset at him because he's upset with her that she has stricken part of this uh, brilliant democratic uh, uh, deal she's got from her, her her list of policy when she becomes president. And and she's like, well, that's just the way it is. I'm really sorry. And he goes, I'm sorry too. And they just continue working together. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Hold on. Like he was just about <laughs> to quit, and now they're not because reasons like it, that doesn't work um but the comedy it's worth saying the, the writing in the bit to bit is pretty funny like they got some good lines in there and a lot of funny references uh that, that i i think it passed the sixth laugh test it, it's a comedy in my mind i, I laughed yeah yeah it, exactly um th- the movie does try to have these uh you know things about like oh we have to work together we have to compromise we have to reach across the aisle it it tries to kind of shoehorn this message about that but it's just done in such a like ham-fisted, forced way that it just it doesn't feel organic, and it just feels forced on you. Like I said, right? And I, I I know they have to kind of accelerate things in the age of the almighty reboot because nothing's original. Uh, but like, what worked about Pretty Woman is like Richard Richard Gere. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I don't remember the woman the, the movie great, but like he wasn't running for president. He was just a high powered executive. That was the deal. I'm like, that That would be fine. If she was running for, like, Secretary of State or, like, maybe Vice President, maybe. But, like, why do you have to ele- elevate this to the literal highest office in the land? The biggest pedestal possible because it only makes it that much easier to discount and therefore disbelieve as the audience member. It's just hard for me to get into. I can't suspend my disbelief and enjoy the film. I did want to talk about the music. Uh, surprisingly well put together soundtrack. It's not great but it's got some solid boys to men in it, which is awesome. (laughs) Yes. There's a trend in film, uh, which we can look back to things like Captain Marvel of basically it's, it's nineties nostalgia bait. And uh, this is, this film is totally that, but it, it works. It is really funny. Um, Boys to men are literally in the film and lots of references to their music and other nineties, you know, nostalgia is in there as well. Yeah. And speaking of nostalgia, somebody we have to talk about in this movie, uh, Andy Circus is in this film. Yes, as a villain uh, who wears a a frankly poor prosthesis uh, to make him look like a, a fat white oil executive from Texas or something who's buying media conglomerates uh, and twisting them to his own sick means uh, to try to change it. The, the point is, like, I, I don't know about you. Andy Circus walked on screen and it took me four seconds to be like, oh, it's Andy Circus. And then the whole rest of the movie, I was like, well, that's definitely Andy Circus. Like, I, it just, because I wanted to know, I was like, who's this bumbling oil villain media guy they've got who's anti environment? Who is this character? And I could not place him. And it took me a couple seconds to be like, oh, it's Andy Circus wearing, wearing like a goofy, a goofy kind of mask and prosthesis. Very yeah, odd. Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't know who it was, but I knew, I mean, I knew it was like someone was wearing prosthetic and, um, yeah, it was kind of a character of this villain. I had no idea it was Andy Circus. Yeah, he wears this hairpiece with a forehead, right, that comes down, but the forehead doesn't have any wrinkles or anything. So it just kind of looks, it doesn't look, it looks unnatural and like you, it doesn't fool you. But um, I, I should talk about the direction and then the cinematography because these are things that I didn't expect to enjoy as much. The direction was okay. Movies directed by Jonathan Levine, who's also directed 50-50, that Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Seth Rogen movie where Joseph Gordon-Levitt gets cancer. Snatched, uh, the Amy Schumer flick that came out last year, Warm Bodies, that movie with uh, uh, Nicholas Holt where he's a he's a vampire and like a Shakespeare kind of thing. Um, but the movie is shot by a guy named, and I'm going to butcher this because I, I, I can't speak uh, Canadian, French, uh, 
Yves Belanger, I'm not sure how to say his name, but this guy, Vies probably, uh, he shot Dallas Buyers Club in 2013, an Academy Award winning film. He shot, he, he, he was on the camera, he, he did camera work for Arrival, the Denis Villeneuve film. He wow. shot, he, he shot Sharp Objects, the HBO series. Uh, he also shot Big Little Lies, the other HBO sh- series. He shot The Mule, the, 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 uh, the Clint, Eastwood. Clint Eastwood film. He shot that. This guy's an unreasonably good cinematographer. Why was he working on this film? <laughs> because there's scenes in this where the characters are like walking and talking on the street, and it's like really well shot, surprisingly well shot. Yeah, I noticed for, for a stupid rom com. I noticed that too. That uh, like they, it looks like they shot on location a lot of times. They shot, you know, they had to have rented planes because uh, there's lots of shots of people coming and walking down planes onto the runway with big press. Um, yeah, I I kind of noticed that too. I was like, this is, looks really nice. I just yeah. wish the the plot was kind of a. Uh, a little bit better than it is. I also wanted to touch on the uh, the really good supporting cast. Uh, we have uh, June Diane Raphael, who plays Maggie Milken, who's uh, one of Charlotte Field's advisors and who hates Seth Rogen's character and, and has a lot of good jokes at his expense. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned O'Shea Jackson Jr., who plays uh, Seth Rogen's best friend. Ravi Patel, another assistant. And of course, Bob Odenkirk playing the uh, president of the United States, which, which I love that they didn't make him like a, uh, you know, a caricature of Donald Trump or anyone. They just made him an idiot. Uh, right. Which, uh, which, which I enjoyed. And An also, airhead, yeah. right. And then, uh, you know, surprise, small performance by Randall Park as well. Right. Very understated performance by Randall Park. I feel like he had a bigger part in that film, but like they just cut him down to one scene or something like in the editing room. Yeah. The editing, the editing, I should mention while I'm at it, little clumsy. Some jokes don't quite land at the right time. Like the comedic timing is a little strange, but again, really well shot. I, I, I really well put together as far as that goes. Yeah. Ultimately, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say the jokes are about 50, 50. I mean, it definitely is funny. I laughed a lot, but a lot of the jokes don't land as well. Yeah, that's, that's true for every swing at the ball, right? That does work. There's five swings that don't that's worth mentioning. And ultimately again, you just, the story is just unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> that just makes it makes it feel not awesome. It's a, a two hour and five minute film that is two minutes longer than Crazy Rich Asians, uh, which makes it about an hour too long, frankly. <laughs> uh, it, this this could have been a 65 Jeez. minute picture and it would have worked fine. Like it, it's it's just a little long in the tooth. It, it not I'm kidding about an hour too long, but like, really, I expected 90 minutes. Boom, boom. Yeah, done, done. It's a, 90, out, and like, it's a 90 minute movie stuffed into two hours. Yeah, and it doesn't need to be. They could have cut that in the editing room. What, so what, ultimately, right? I, I don't know. I guess ultimately, Andy, any other thoughts before we get on a recommendation? What would needed to have been different for it to, for it to work for you? Okay, again, the editing. Uh, I think I think that's important. There, there's a lot of those. There, there's too many shots in this movie that are actually really pretty that don't get nearly enough time. There's there's shots of. Uh, Seth Rogen on a beach uh, one during during a sunrise that's kind of shot from the side that's just like gorgeous stuff that like would be on HBO. This man has shot two HBO series and like, that shot's on there for like five seconds, then it moves on. And then there's other like there's this landscape stuff and like there's stuff you really could have hung on for like to have emotional weight, but it moves a little too fast in a two hour runtime because you were convinced there's parts of the plot you needed to keep in that you didn't, you easily could have lost. Uh, it's a little too crass. 
at some points. It, do, it doesn't deserve the R rating. Well, it deserves the R rating it has for the wrong reason. It could have been PG-13, but they ramped it up, I guess, to be edgy and cool, which doesn't work. It, it ends up just... It, the, the R-rated jokes are the, kind of the stuff that doesn't work super well. Right, right. Um, what do you for, think? For me, I, I needed him to not be like this shock journalist because... In the trailer, they just said he's a, he's like an environmental journalist, and I, I could bought that, but it, it seems like he's writing for a tabloid almost. You know, it, it doesn't seem very authentic. I think that hurts the story. Also, you just got to find someone in better shape than Seth Rogen, man. Like, come on. <laughs> it's Hollywood. There's lots of people. <laughs> like, get a trainer. It's just like uh, he needed to be more realistic. Like, there's no way someone like him is getting with someone like that. Right. Uh, and that again, like, I don't, I don't mean to say, well, anything could happen, but like, nah, I just, why, why not? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I just felt like the characters were too split they were too far away to work. Like pretty woman. Part of what was so charming about that was that it's like, it seemed possible. Like, yeah, sure. Maybe anything could happen. You know, C- a Cinderella story. This one, like with, with, like you said, the the four Seth Rogen like just does not fly. It just doesn't <laughs> land. He doesn't he doesn't quite get there. Even when he like cleans up, right in the in the traditional like Cinderella story scene when it's like, oh, he all you know he he looks great now. Like no, he still looks like schlubby schmo <laughs> jabroni Seth Rogen. Um, get a so. haircut, young man. <laughs> yeah, get a haircut. Put the bong away for God's sake. Um, I don't exactly. Know. Yeah. I, oh, any any other thoughts for recommendations? I'm ready to move on. Andy, would you recommend Long Shot? Uh, yes and no. So it is funny. I did laugh a lot. So if you're looking for, you know, a date movie or, well, I don't know, maybe not. Maybe not a first date. Maybe after you know them. But, you know, it's a casual comedy maybe that you can inv- watch with your significant other or probably wait for streaming if you really want to catch it. Uh, like I said, there are some good things. It's funny. Charlie Theron's performance is really great. Um, but yeah, I, I would probably skip it in the theater. Wait for streaming if you're interested. You know, it's funny. I, I'm going to go. Yes. I'm going to say this movie is worth your time. I'm going to recommend you watch it with nobody. Watch it alone. <laughs> uh, because, yes. the, like I said, that R-rated cringe humor that comes in later like, is so uncomfortable. I, I wouldn't want to be sitting next to anybody in the whole world to watch that with. I saw this alone uh, in my theater. Thank God. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm socially awkward enough for that to matter. But ultimately, like this movie, I think, I really do think, is better than the sum of its parts. But it just isn't believable like it, it just falls apart right at the finish line right like ultimately it just doesn't work but there's it's it's really pretty the soundtrack's really well put together the the writing is just biting enough to get a few laughs out of you you'll laugh when you're watching this movie like you could do worse you could do a lot worse in a rom-com than long shot so for for that i'm gonna have to give it a thumbs up i think it's worth your time and with that we should move on to our next segment andy uh you want to you want to do the honors on this one, or I can take it? How you feel? <laughs> it's time for the death of cinema. Okay, so this week we're going to be talking about Sonic the Hedgehog. Gotta go fast. Uh, last week we had a trailer for the live-action, semi-live-action uh <laughs> Uh, Sonic 
movie. Uh, Sonic, of course, is a video game property that goes back to the early 90s, uh, has existed in many games, TV shows, that sort of thing. Gotta go fast. Yeah, and it's been adapted into a full-length film. And it looks terrible, and the internet went wild. And not that the movie looks bad, although that is true, but just the animation of Sonic looks awful. It's just, it creeps people out. It's weird. It's odd. It doesn't fit. It's not cute. It's not realistic. It's some weird thing in between. Um, It's real bad. And what has happened, apparently, is the backlash has been so fierce uh, that uh, the production studio is going to kind of remake not the entire movie, not reshoot it, but I guess kind of redesign his character and I guess hope they get it done in time. Yeah, it's it's really something. If you're listening to this show, you've seen it by now. And if you haven't, do yourself a favor and just Google Sonic the Hedgehog movie and watch the trailer. The, 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 the still clips don't even do it justice. The character design is so bad. And like Sonic has been a... A tough property to market for a long time. Like, it's just challenging. Um, And video game movies are already really hard to adapt. So they were going for something cutting and edgy with this. Like, try to do something really cool. And it just did not land at all. We know it's aimed at children. We know it's aimed at children because we can look at Jim Carrey, the best part of this trailer. uh, Doing Jim Carrey, the best Jim Carrey he's done in a decade. Uh, and doing his Jim Carrey humor, and like it's kind of funny, and I'm like, okay, this is for kids. Like, obviously, this is supposed to be for kids. That's who this this is right. made for. Um, but even then, like the character design is so bad, and there have been there were artists that hopped online a couple days after and reworked it. It took stills from the movie, and like, well, here's how I would have done it, and here's how I would have put in basically original Sonic, and it looks so much better. Like, it's obscene yeah. how much better it looks than this atrocity. They put together. So because of that, Andy, uh, what what happened, right? After a couple days of this being on fire, how does the studio respond? Well, they they tweeted that they were going to go back to the drawing board and redesign the character. And I guess because it's all CGI, they can just kind of, you know, put a new coat, coat of paint on it, uh, for lack of a better term. Right. Hashtag gotta fix fast, according to <laughs> Jeff Fowler, who is making his feature film directorial debut with this film. He's the director, and he's saying everyone at Paramount Sega are fully committed to making this character the best he can be. Hashtag Sonic movie. Hashtag gotta fix fast. You've got five months till the film comes out. And this is ultimately what made this our, our Death of Cinema segment, because we felt like we had to talk about it, and we felt like we had to talk about the a studio flipping the design of a... Of the main character of a film, right? The title character. And and five months before it comes out, you go back and say, you know what? We're just going to CGI this this and and figure it out. It's 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 worth mentioning. No, you know what? No. Initial impressions. I, I'll talk about worth mentioning in a second. Andy, what do you think about this? Uh, I, I think you're right. I, I think it's a dangerous precedent for a company to say, okay, there's been a, b- a bunch of backlash let's redesign the character because then, you know, what are you always going to please the audience that much? I mean, you could make arguments for every, you know, every fandom that's blown up from about Ghostbusters or Star Wars or other properties. Um, I don't think it's something that studios should get into the habit of to kind of reacting to uh, public disgust. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I don't think this is something you should probably uh, get into because the, all this man... You can't, you can't let the internet win, right? You can't tell the internet, hey, all your hate worked and we're going to listen. 
Like that's real dangerous. And I know they sh- they put ninety million dollars into this film, so they're looking to make some money back, obviously. And and if this thing goes doesn't go their way, they're doomed. And clearly they were doomed beforehand. But like in the long term, we are really sacrificing a certain something by telling angry fanboys and fangirls uh, that their voices are heard and we're going to listen to you and you get what you want. It's right. very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it was something even with Disney firing James Gunn from Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and then walking that back, I thought was insane. I couldn't believe they did that. Yeah. Um, because I figured, surely, like, you're not going to let let the people of the internet know that they matter. <laughs> that's that's a mistake. Um, but here we are. It's a different time in Hollywood, you know? Yeah, and then on the one hand, you know, you do want to have a happy audience, to have an audience that is into your movie. And so I can see them, I can see why they did it. They're like, well, if we make this change and it gets more people into the film, well, then that's a good thing. But it's like you said, I don't think it's a good precedent to get into the habit of succumbing to the pressure. And I, it's worth mentioning here at the top of this article I'm looking at from TechCrunch that they pointed out that the best example so far, right, one of the best known instances of a film being altered in post-production over internet consensus is going to be in 2006 with the film Snakes on a Plane, the Samuel L. Jackson picture. You're familiar. Yep. They, they added five days of reshoots six months after filming to tip it over from PG-13 into R. That was when they added the line, I've had it with these mother flipping snakes on this mother flipping plane that's when that happened and that's what ended up making that movie for what it was now obviously snakes on a plane is not any kind of (laughs) cultural landmark but if i can say snakes on a plane and you know what movie i'm talking about we're in a pretty good spot and arguably those reshoots are what made that happen but this is a kid's film this is not that movie and you can't add a bunch of f-bombs and make it work maybe you can flip sonic or maybe you can't i guess time will tell Mm mm-hmm So, uh, with that, we should move on to our final film of the show. This is a Netflix-exclusive picture, so if you'd like to see it, we're not going to spoil it, but you can check it out there. The movie is extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. Did you do these things, Ted? This is all going to end. It's only going to end with the truth. So, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, or as we've dubbed it in our show notes, EWSEV, is a Zac Efron picture. He plays Ted Bundy, who is not quite our title character, but you wouldn't know it. Uh, The movie is held up by Lily Collins, I think is her name, uh, a, a young actress who plays a girlfriend. And a single mother uh, in in Seattle, I think, is where she's at in the 70s when she meets this wonderful guy at a bar and takes him home and they spend time together and they come to love each other and foster a relationship. But it turns out that man is Ted Bundy, uh, who is a serial killer for anybody who doesn't know. And Ted Bundy is taken into custody after he's pulled over one night and he's fingered for some murders right they they point at him and say hey you're you're the bad guy you must have done this and he says no i'm innocent i i'm i'm a good guy and she tries to believe him and stick with him and ultimately this becomes a a trial and and there's cameras involved and somehow this is made a public broadcast thing and ted bundy is perceived by the nation as this guy who's just too charming he's just too normal he couldn't be evil right he couldn't be a monster he's 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 a good looking man Uh, And she struggles to cope with whether or not he's done these things uh, the world claims he's done or if he is truly innocent, as he and he alone says. Uh, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile is about two hours. Uh, It's it's a divisive film, I think, and I want to talk about why. But Andy, what did you think 
of extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. So I, I have really mixed feelings on any uh, film that's kind of about a c- serial killers. Uh, I know it's serial killers are like America's pastime. It's something that people like to get into and learn about and learn all the grisly details. But I can't help that that films end up kind of glorifying these people. So I, I, I go into this film kind of w- with a lot of hesitancy uh, to begin with. Um, I didn't realize until just now reading this, but this movie is based on Lily, not Lily Collins, uh, Elizabeth Kendall's book, who plays uh, Ted Bundy's longtime girlfriend. Um, I, that you would have fooled me because the movie doesn't seem to be about her at all. She's a very strong supporting character, but it it is about definitely about Ted Bundy. Um, there, I, I feel that there are good things. It is shot well. The performances are well, but again. My, I have an issue with just kind of that this movie exists at all uh, in this fashion. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's got s- some issues. Where where should we begin? Well, I, I guess the issues, right? That's the best place to start. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, to, if I could characterize this movie very briefly, I'd say uh, it, it's very much like Zodiac Light, right? Yeah, yeah. Di- Diet Zodiac. Zodiac is a 2007 film, David Fincher shot, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr., about the Zodiac murders in San Francisco in the 1970s. It's dark, it's it's locked on a tripod, it's David Fincher, and man, I love Fincher. Love me some Fincher. Uh, and this movie basically tries to do that, but it lacks the pace, and it really lacks the tone. Because yeah. David Fincher, again, is always on a tripod. He is always locked down, and his shots are long and agonizing, and he draws that suspension out like a Quentin Tarantino rubber band, and it's good stuff. This movie is shot like that, but it's not edited like that, and it's not written like that. So it kind of has this look that's similar. It's kind of dark and brooding and, and tony and shadowy, but it moves along too fast. And you don't get a whole lot of time to really dwell on things. And you don't have much of an opportunity to wonder whether or not Ted Bundy is truly a bad guy because he is framed throughout this entire film as pretty much completely innocent. Uh, yeah. And and I do, I do feel that that is one of the points that I think the film was trying to make. Cause there's a quote at the end that says, you know, killers and murderers aren't, you know, they don't come out of the, the dark with fangs and claws and, you know, they're people you know, people you love, people you respect, your neighbor, your co-worker. And, and I think the film is trying to get that message across, but it ends up kind of just glorifying the guy and, and really the victims are an after, afterthought. And that's the other thing is that this movie is not about the victims at all. Uh, it, at the at very end, we get a list of his known uh murders which about 30 women uh which is unbelievable at that number uh but yeah it's like an afterthought and again it's it's like no t- ted bunny he he may he may have been a cool guy you just don't know yeah it's it's really something because you know zodiac isn't necessarily about the the women uh the, that are murdered by zodiac or the victims it's about robert robert i forget his name uh i want to say robert browning who wrote the book on uh, the Zodiac killer and, and his journey into kind of finding him. Um, and it's told from that, that viewpoint, but it's still, it still matters. It still has value. It still has interviews with these people and, and, and horrifying stuff. This movie spends no time, none on any of that. You don't get, you don't, you don't get that grisly murder scene you're waiting for, right? When like this good natured character that you've come to know and, and love and Ted Bundy is suddenly out in the woods uh, doing horrible stuff doesn't happen. 
You never see it. it. It's just told from the girlfriend's kind of, oh, he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. I don't think he could have done these things. He's a nice guy. And I, and I think that's kind of the point is that, you know, they don't want to glorify the violence or the murders. And so they don't have any like, uh, aside from one, they don't really have a bunch of grisly scenes. Uh, so I feel like they're trying to be respectful. But again, if if I didn't know that the this movie was based on her book, um, yeah, the, the movie's not based on her at all or it doesn't seem that way. Right, she has less screen time than Zac Efron does. And Zac Efron's a star, and that's that's something we should talk about. Uh, you've cast America's Sweetheart, a very handsome young man, uh, as a serial killer. And in this movie, it's it's said that Ted Bundy, women, women that watched this trial, thought he was attractive. People thought, oh, he didn't do it. He looks too nice. He looks too good. And I get that. I get what you're going for. But, like, at the same time, it's hard to condemn that. It's hard to condemn that mentality that somebody could be evil but look really good in a movie that you're putting on Netflix starring a guy who looks really good. Right. You know what I mean? Like people are going to like, that's, that's the problem. That's why articles have, have come out about Netflix, uh, you know, kind of, kind of producing a culture here or putting a stigma behind serial killers that they shouldn't because of exactly what this movie is doing, because you made this very bad guy look like a very good person. And that's a, that's a dangerous precedent. Da- to yeah. Say. And that's exactly, I mean, and it's kind of meta because that's what the the film is about as well. You know, he did ha- he did have a girlfriend while he was on trial and in prison, and you know he f- managed to father a child while in in prison as as well. And I mean, these things happen. And it it what I think this would have uh, benefited a lot more from a documentary treatment because then you can ask a lot of these hard questions without glorifying the acts. And again, it, it reminds me of, and I always go back to this, uh, into the abyss, uh, which is Werner Herzog. Look at the death penalty with, uh, two men who are on death row in, uh, in Texas. Um, and you know, that, that film goes into grisly detail about their crimes. And, uh, one of the two men, uh, you know, it's filmed before and after his execution. Um, and it's really sobering and it, but it asks a lot of deep questions about the justice system, about society, all these things. And I feel like we're, the, the film tries to do that, but just, it just never gets there. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right about the documentary stuff. The most powerful footage in this film is when it hits credits because it cuts to the actual stuff that happened, right? Similar to, uh, uh, American crime story, OJ Simpson, right? The first season of American crime story. They did a lot of that. They would pepper in the real footage, outside of like the, the fake stuff they went back and reshot essentially that's the most powerful stuff in the film when you actually see it happening and like it cuts to a list at the end of his 30 plus victims and it's like horrifying and just hangs on there it's like what <laughs> why wasn't this the subject of the film why did, yeah, why did why, you make it yeah yeah i would have make... liked to see a film about all of these girls like and i give yeah. give, the, give them like they're the ones who need to be be in the spotlight Right. And, and I appreciate like the angle. It's trying to be clever, but it just kind of isn't. It just doesn't get there. Um, and ultimately, it's lukewarm. I had a friend that, that started watching this uh, Friday night with his wife. He said he said they made it about maybe an hour in and then turned it off. They got bored. It's boring. Yeah, Nothing yeah. happens. Yeah. The- and I'm not saying I'm not saying you have to have murder in, in a serial killer movie for it to be interesting. But like you should definitely consider it because <laughs> it you gives it weight. Consider- it gives it value. Well, it just kind of meandered the second act or, um, you know, is mostly about him on trial and like, it's a good 45 minutes of, of that. And it's, it's just a slog to, to get through. Um, although it, it has a strangely good cast again, Zach Efron, uh, Lily Collins, uh, what was I going to mention? 
John Malkovich is John, yeah, John Malkovich plays the judge. Haley Joel Osment, who I haven't seen he shows up in the weirdest movies. Uh, yes, he does, doesn't he? Um so he was in this. Um Angelus Sarafian, who I know from Westworld. So there's some really you know, strong cast here. Strange appears by James Hetfield, by the way, from Metallica. Oh yeah, he was I was trying to figure out who that was. I was like, why do I know who this person is? Yeah, James Hetfield from Metallica, you're totally right. What an odd choice. Yeah, so um the it it's weird because there it is a strong cast. And I think her book like I would like to read her book, but I not like I feel like the movie's nothing like her book. Right. I would argue the book might be better. Because <laughs> like that's what uh, I mean. Right. At its core, the story is really interesting. A girlfriend of the most evil man in America who has never seen any evidence that he might be in any way bad. And the whole world says, you're no good. And he's like, I'm innocent, obviously. Don't you believe me? Like, look. And, and she's, she's, it's true. She has nothing. Like, that's, that. there's really something there. Like, that, that tragedy and, like, that trying to cope with that and figure it out. And, but, like. I mean, it's it's implied she has a drinking problem in this because of two scenes where one, she's drinking something and two, she's throwing away all of her bottles of alcohol and her friends are like looking along and nodding nonchalantly like, yeah, you're doing the right thing. Like, <laughs> what? That's the movie. Either it's about her or it's about the victims, but it's not, it shouldn't be about him. That's the wrong. Right, exactly. You know? And that's exactly yeah. who, it, who it's about. Uh, any other thoughts on this before recommendations? I, I think I'm ready to move on. Yeah, I think I am too. Andy, would you recommend Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile? I'm going to go with Hard No, uh, <laughs> which I rarely do for a number of reasons. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I, I have a problem with the premises of this movie to begin with. Uh, number two, it's not about her her and her book, which her book is about her experience of you know being his wife, girlfriend, whatever. Um, it's not about that. And again, I think it glorifies the serial killer more than the victims. It's way too long. It's kind of boring. Uh, so it doesn't really have a whole lot going on for it. Agreed. Pass. Hard pass. <laughs> if you see it on Netflix, keep on scrolling. Don't even bother. Not worth your time. Uh, it's lukewarm. If you want to watch Zac Efron in like a dark, edgy movie, this isn't that movie because he plays a charming, nice guy who's supposed to be innocent the whole time. So you're not you're not going to get that fix even if that's what you want if you want evil Zac Efron this isn't that movie so pass uh it's a shame I think there was a lot of potential in what this was supposed to be but ultimately it falls flat I guess there's a good reason it's on Netflix and not in the theater Mm -hmm. so and it it does remember remind me um so this this past season on uh True Detective one of the themes is kind of the America's obsession with true crime and that show is criticizing that kind of fetishization of that and this movie is a perfect example of that fetishization. I need to go back and finish True Detective season three. I've watched the first episode twice and I've never made it further. I watched it when it came out and then I watched it a couple weeks ago and then never, never kept going. And I'll tell you why, because True Detective is a show that requires active watching. You yes. put your phone away, you gotta watch it. And like, it's, that's a big ask for me nowadays, but I'm, I'm, I'm a child. So Uh, next week on the show, we're taking the week off. We should talk about that. Uh, If you enjoyed what you heard here, subscribe to us. But for now, uh, we're going to take a week. The next week we come back, we're hitting a hard double feature from the theater with Detective Pikachu and Tolkien. I'm I'm, I'm more excited to see one than the other. But to find out which, you're going to have to listen and and find out. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sorry, that's that's wrong on the schedule. So Detective Pikachu and Tolkien come out this week, which we're skipping. Sorry, I just wanted to mention that those, those were the big releases. 
of do you of, want do you want do you want to see either of those for the show then because we, we probably should see at least one of them the one i want to see i want to see detective pikachu uh, uh so can... maybe sorry I'm, I'm trying to hurriedly put, pull up to see what what comes okay, up okay you know you next. know what keep, keep it here on off script to find out what we're watching next time. how about that <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, problem solved oh here we go john wick 3 is, is may 7th may 17th release that oh, could be the, be the big one uh, uh hard so confession here i never finished john wick 1 and never saw john wick 2 you know i didn't either but i'm definitely going to because i want i really I'm excited about this franchise, even though I haven't really gotten into it. One thing about it, John Wick 3, is it Parabellum or Parabellum? How do you say this? I think it's Parabellum. Parabellum? I've heard Parabellum before. As opposed to Antebellum. Is this is this like Uranus and Uranus, right? Like you can say it both ways and like... No, well, it's two different words. Like para is for, bellum is war. Right. Like for war is what it's uh, trying to say. Well, that does Uh, sound really sick. Yeah. I need to check out some John Wick three. Right. Yeah, but but like I said, the big releases next week are Detective Pikachu and Tolkien. See those. Let us know what you, what you think, and uh, I guess we'll get ready for uh, John Wick three. Yes, we will. Uh, subscribe to the show if you haven't yet. Drop us a rating and review. If you're listening on iTunes, it's like super easy. You just you just turn on your screen, and it's like there it is, five stars. You just click it, and you're done. You're on your way. Uh, the four star button doesn't work. The other ones don't either. It's a weird thing on our page. Just click five. Like it's fine. I, <laughs> it's a bummer. Like I, I, we've been emailing iTunes. It's a, it's a whole thing. But uh, check out our Facebook page, our Twitter page, our Instagram page. We're all around. We're even on YouTube a little bit. Believe it or not, I forget to keep plugging that, but that's the thing. Check us out on YouTube. And thanks for listening to the show. If you like movies and you like movies like we do, go ahead and subscribe because we want to keep talking about them. And we'd love for you to hear and and see what you think about us too. Talking about movies it's fine anyway uh from all of us at off script the home of bold cinema i'm zach lewis and i'm dr draper thanks for listening